2: Hello and welcome back to the Prospect interview, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Tom Clark, editor of Prospect magazine, and today we're assembling the panel for what, as we build our March cover story we're calling the UK's unofficial COVID-19 inquiry. We all assume that there's going to be an official probe one day deaths from the virus went up past 100,000. The question of why so many more people had died in this country than elsewhere in the world was one that we felt we just couldn't leave alone until then. And so we've sent for our favourite Whitehall watcher, Gabby Hinsliff, science expert Phil Ball, and I sneak myself onto the panel as a, I don't know, public policy wonk. It's a year now since the virus arrived on these shores, uh, and it's dominated, as we all know, at absolutely everything since. Politics, economics, and also what we used to call our social lives. It's a sprawling crisis that never stops uh, changing. There's been a couple of really big twists recently on vaccination, which we will come back to. You know, this has changed even since we put the pen down on this article just a couple of weeks ago, and we'll come back to all of that at the end. But precisely because things never settle down, I'd like to keep most of our inquiry looking into the record over the last 12 months and we'll range freely over the different aspects of it in terms of policy response, the science, the economics, the politics, but we're always going to have one question in mind, which is why did so many people have to die? So Phil, I'm going to start with you and just say um, how bad really is the UK performance on that single measure
0: of death? Well, to be honest, it could hardly be worse. You know, in terms of large countries, by which I mean over, let's say, 40 million or so people, we have the highest per capita death rate in the world. At the moment, uh, we're only exceeded at the moment by Belgium and Slovenia. Our death rate is is substantially higher even than the USA, where we know COVID has just kind of wreaked havoc and you know gone almost unchecked. So there's no question that we've done extraordinarily badly. If we compare ourselves to countries that have done relatively well, like Japan and uh, Australia, then it, it brings home the scale of, of of just how poor the performance has been. That uh, a, a random chosen British person, is around 35 times more likely to have died of COVID-19 than an Australian, around 40 times more likely than a Japanese person, so very clearly something has gone badly wrong here that hasn't happened in most of the rest of the world. And yet, Gabby, when we consider
2: preparedness, all these things in life from uh, the Cubs and Scouts on are meant to be about being prepared. But we weren't too badly rated on preparedness for the pandemic, were we?
1: No, on paper we should have been you know ahead of the game it should have been one of the sort of best countries to be living in when a pandemic struck the world because this is something that we'd been expecting for a long time and pretty much every year since the millennium the chief medical officer's annual report would conclude with saying you know and we still remain concerned about the risk of a novel pandemic it was by 2019 it was top of the cabinet office's risk register of sort of things that could come out of the blue and and hit us so we had all of our strategies prepared we're obviously an island which which should have helped us in terms of um, being relatively easily able to close the borders although that's a power that we didn't use that's something we'll come back to i think at the end of this and also we have the nhs you know we have a free universal healthcare system so unlike in the us if you get symptoms you're not worried about calling the doctor because it's not going to cost you any money so you know on paper we look great Um, But unfortunately, we had some hidden weaknesses, but rather exposed by the past year. So we don't have much spare capacity in hospitals, you know, high bed occupancy. So not much room to absorb a sort of sudden surge of patients, lots of public health cutbacks over the years. And while we prepared really well, what we were expecting was a novel flu, not a novel coronavirus. And that involves a different strategy and I think part of our problems at the beginning were following the plan that we had you know by letter saying we've got this great plan let's stick to it whereas other countries that weren't so well prepared were just looking at what was happening to the countries around them and going whoa shut the borders now you know this is obviously this is obviously a big deal and we thought we had this clever strategy which turned out to be not quite so clever perhaps in the
2: end. Um, And one of the big differences with flu I think Phil is that COVID people can harbour the thing for a few days, whereas with flu, you get the virus and you get ill very quickly. And those few days really put an emphasis on
0: tracing and testing. Um, How did the UK do there, Phil? Well, again, very poorly. I mean, it has to be said, we were there, we were starting from a a standing start. We, We really didn't have any capacity to do that properly at the beginning. And we were very slow to build that capacity up um you know one of the big problems way back in march last year was that it very the the spread of covid very quickly overwhelmed any co- testing capacity we had and eventually it was abandoned in the community and simply you know used in in hospitals because that was really all we could cope with and that was a huge problem because it meant that very very quickly we we lost tr- we lost track of how rapidly the the virus was spreading. We had no way of monitoring the way it was spreading. And so the modelers had, you know, very poor data to go on. They were struggling to be able to make any reasonable predictions because they didn't have good data. Now, you know, I should say that gradually that got better. The capacity for our testing system now is comparable to many other countries. So it was built up. How well the system operated is another matter entirely. And we know that there have been breakdowns in the system, um, logistical breakdowns and data breakdowns in the system. So it hasn't done well in that respect. But, you know, in terms of the capacity, we now have it. And it's uh, increasingly clear that testing and tracing and isolating is going to continue to be absolutely vital, even while vaccines are rolled out and even for some time after they, they, they've been rolled out. That is going to be an absolutely crucial part of keeping the virus under control. So that has to be working properly and certainly has to be working better than it has done so far. I mean, it's some um, interesting looking back. The WHO, very,
2: very clear, very, very early on that testing and tracing is the name of the game. And you can forgive the UK for not necessarily being on top of testing of a novel virus, but, you know, it t- t- took time to build that up. But the weird thing that comes through, fill in a section of this that I think you wrote, is people like Chris Whitty and Jenny Harris, his deputy, as the senior medical officers, saying during the course of March last year that, uh, that, that it was no longer necessary for us to identify every case, that the pandemic was ramping up in a way that meant that the early idea of doing test and trace was, was no longer as useful as it should have been, as if, you know, they were keen to put a gloss almost on the fact that they couldn't keep up, rather than just concentrating on figuring out how to keep
0: up. Well that's certainly what it looks like now, it was very peculiar language that they used to, to say that it would be no longer useful to use testing in the community, whereas it seems the reality was it was no longer possible because we simply didn't have the capacity, but it would certainly have been useful if we did. That was very clear from countries that were able to do that. South Korea, of course, being a notable example. And it seemed to me that you know in this respect, this was one of the respects in which we saw a kind of exceptionalism start to creep in straight away in terms of how the UK decided to deal with this problem. The, you know, one of the comments from the, the uh, Deputy Chief Medical Officer was that you know, whatever the World Health Organization was, was saying wasn't, wasn't, didn't apply to us about testing. That was for countries, that was for developing countries. Um, you know, we didn't need that. This was simply untrue, and it was a very misleading thing to say, but I think it does reflect this idea that somehow the UK was going to develop its own bespoke uh, strategy for dealing with the virus that wasn't really going to take much heed of what the organisations like the World Health Organisation or the international community and experience generally was recommending. We were going to do it our way and we did I guess in the end and we now see the consequences of that.
2: Yes and it wasn't only with tracing whether there was slightly weird kind of um, Britain going its own way lines there was also stuff on masks where the WHO was very uncertain but the British High Command sort of moved to say that masks were were, were possibly the opposite of helpful, which is is quite weird. And you think, Phil, that somewhere in the background, although this is something we can never quite pin down where in the background, there was this thought about herd immunity that was uh, affecting what was called, you know, with a sort of laughable kind of um, oversimplification, the science that we were going to achieve this herd immunity which um Patrick Vallance suggested you know 60% also the population being exposed might mean that we wouldn't have to worry about covid so much
0: yes it was it was that idea was very clearly part of the strategy no matter what is being said now if you go back and look at what was said by Patrick Vallance and other leading members of SAGE it was very clear that that idea was part of it you know they're saying this was never the objective it was something that would automatically arise but the the the, the, that's kind of semantics you know the whole notion was there is no way you can prevent this virus from spreading throughout the population Um, so all you can do is to is to manage that by this, this notion that we would somehow shelter the, the vulnerable people and right. accept that the virus will spread amongst everyone else. An idea that, for all sorts of reasons, you know, made no sense even at the time. Um, one clear one being that we knew nothing really about immunity generally at that time. We didn't know whether people who got the virus would be immune. We also didn't know who the vulnerable people were. It was clear that age was the major factor, that older people were vulnerable but as we know plenty of younger people have died there seems uh, very likely to be a genetic component to that and you know that still has to be understood but plenty of people were vulnerable who weren't in the you know the 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 oldest um age group it, 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 so it was always a fantasy that somehow we would know who was vulnerable and shelter them and you, you know that this idea uh, changed famously after the the, the modeling done by the group at Imperial College led by Neil Ferguson. Now, I mean, this wasn't the only factor in that decision, but that was the one that made the headlines, that he said, if we go ahead with the kind of mitigation strategy that we're taking at the moment, where we're just trying to slow the spread of the virus rather than stop it, if we go ahead with that and the measures that were being taken at that point, then the results would be catastrophic. There would be upwards of a quarter of a million deaths. And, you know, that seems to be what, what changed, uh, what woke people up to the fact that this mitigation strategy wasn't going to work. But it doesn't take a lot of hindsight, really, to, to recognize that that was inevitably going to be the case with a virus that, as we knew at that point, had the kind of fatality rate that it did you know, no matter how you try to identify and shield the vulnerable people, many, many people were clearly going to die if you accepted that the virus would simply make its way through the population. So in retrospect, this strategy seemed very, very hard to to understand, you know, why everyone went along with that. It does seem that there is an element of groupthink amongst the scientists. And I can't help suspecting, you know, the fact that there is such a, a convenient fit between that idea and a libertarian government that doesn't like imposing rules on people. It does make me wonder whether there was, you know, some kind of group think that was also feeding back from what the, the politicians wanted to hear from their scientists. Something there was amiss.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. I
1: mean, this is the point where Phil and I disagree, to be honest. (laughs) I think partly due to coming at it from from different perspectives. It's fascinating where this idea of herd immunity comes from, because the ministers were absolutely adamant on the record. Herd immunity is not our objective. Herd immunity is not part of our strategy. Matt Hancock did sort of, you know, tireless back to back tours of TV studios, insisting that. And if you go back through the sage minutes, you know, it doesn't there's no sort of grounding or basis for it there. It seems part of the explanation for what happened is that in a way it's a fantasy, this idea that we could choose between um, suppressing the virus and, um, and you know, just start trying to manage its flow through the population at the point at which these decisions are being taken sort of in early to, to mid-March. By that point, I mean, the idea that the, the virus didn't come into... Britain in sort of one or two places that we could then control and contain. The genomics, if you looking back at where and where and how it spread, um, it looks as if we had hundreds of cases coming in over February and March, hundreds of different points of entry, each then spreading the virus among their sort of friends and contacts. And we didn't have a test and trace system that was picking up where this was happening. So by the time point at which everyone's saying, oh, yeah, you know, we should have an immediate suppression strategy, we'd lost the ability to do that. And at that point, you know, the fire, you've already got the forest fire going. And at that point, you, there's no opportunity to just stamp it out. It's, it's spread so far. And at that point, they, they have a strategy, which is really a flu strategy then of, of let's, okay, but let's try and control the pressure on hospitals. Into that mix, you have um, new information coming about the fatality rate because the, the fatality rates that China were publishing um, were below what we suddenly saw. You know, when we saw the big outbreak in Italy, you suddenly realized, what this meant in a western context you know we could see it happening in a country that was very comparable to us with a health system that was comparable to ours, and you're looking at the thinking oh my god you know this is that's the point i think at which um, it sunk in for government what was likely to happen to us so knowing all of that the incomprehensible thing then looking back becomes the sort of slowness with which we responded to that and i'm sure it didn't feel slow at the time if you were the people taking decisions but but looking back, you do see these missed opportunities in early to mid-March where other countries are responding faster than we are. And, you know, Ireland's closing its schools or whatever it is. You know, it's, it's not just Italy, which is, which is heavily affected at that point. It's obviously responding, you know. And, and is that the point where we should have been looking around and going, whoa, you know, it is time that we change tack?
2: Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems, too. One of the things in the piece is that we go through and we've got lots of these dates. It looks like the 13th of March was a pretty much a, a low point for two reasons. One, we've got Patrick Valance sort of saying, you know, that the aim should be to allow enough of us who are going to get mildly ill to become immune to this to get the whole population response. Now, I mean, that may not have been minuted in sage, but it's kind of in the ether in some way. And the 13th of March is also the day, Gabby, of the um, Cheltenham Gold Cup, which is the sort of notorious symbol of allowing really big group events to go on. And yet 10 days later, as you describe, lockdown's come in and then like Downing Street's ill and everyone's very clear. So it all moves within about two weeks. Week? But I was going to say, but the, the thing that when we get to the question of how these decisions are made, the thing I think made you more wound up perhaps than, than in the first round where you can to some extent uh, excuse some of the confusion is really how you saw the same pattern of thinking play out with, I don't know if we call it the second or the third wave, but when the new variant comes in the autumn.
1: The autumn wave, yeah. I mean, the mistake in the the first wave is very clearly, I mean, uh, Neil Ferguson, um, his later analysis suggested that if we'd locked down a week earlier, you know, you would have halved the death toll in March, you know, so that's the difference. When When the pandemic is spreading that fast, that's the difference a week make so that you feel that's the lesson we should have taken into the later part of the year. You know, that the time to act is when all your backbenchers are still saying, why are you overreacting now? You know, that is the time when you you should be doing it. And yet what happens? We, we obviously come through the first lockdown, unlock, probably unlock too early, at least for parts of the country, uh, for, for the northwest, particularly where the R rate was still very high when we started. Unlocking in May, so cases are building over summer, you know, gets to September, send the schools back, they go up again. And it's in September, October, that people first start saying, you know, is this, are we looking at another lockdown? And the government is still absolutely adamant at this point, no, we're not gonna have another lockdown. Don't want to have another lockdown. We can't do that again to the economy. and sort of you then sage asks for a circuit breaker over the October half term, and government sort of dinners and dallies and doesn't, and it doesn't happen. And we've kind of missed the window for that. And then we have a sort of half lockdown in November, but it's all a bit late. And then you reach this crunch point around Christmas where cases are, or just before Christmas, where cases are absolutely rocketing. We can see that, particularly in the southeast. Um, and it becomes clear that's been happening for a while. So the numbers rising should have been telling government that something was happening that was unusual. They you know, weren't responding to lockdown measures in the way that we had in spring. And then you get the confirmation in December that there's a new variant started in Kent. It's more infectious. And that's why um, suddenly we're seeing cases exploding. And at that point, you know, surely if you'd learned the message from March, at that point, what you do is say, I'm very sorry, everyone. I'm sorry it's Christmas and everything, but we lock down. And of course, that's not what happened. Instead, we got, uh, first of all, um, told that we could have five days of Christmas and three households mingling. And then that was cut down to to one day and nothing in London. But, you know, still, it's January the 4th, before we finally lock down again. And that is only um, after children, primary school children have been back to school for one day, one pointless day during which all they could do was spread germs around and that's i think when we were all looking at this that was the as you say the inexcusable thing is the feeling that anyone can make a mistake in a in a novel crisis something you've never dealt with before but if you make the same mistake twice
2: mm. it doesn't look so good does it i mean we've got the the, the in the magazine the Daily express front page boris battles experts to save christmas which feels a bit like one telling moment and then his performance on the Andrew Marr show you allude to where he said yes yes we are sending children back to school shortly before his education secretary Gavin Williamson had been trying to take uh, Greenwich to court to stop them closing the school and this happened then for one day uh, before the schools are closed again Um, and of course we've had absolute carnage in intensive care units ever since and so then Gabby you come to the question of leadership this was a lot for any leader in any country in any like uh place in the world to take on because as you say it's novel but how far do you think in the end the uk's performance is about the instincts and the lack of attention to detail in in boris johnson
1: I think in the end, it comes down very profoundly to questions of judgment. And when we often talk, when talking about the handling of this pandemic, we say, talk about following the science and a government should have followed the science at this point or that point or the other. And of course, you know, if you get expert scientific advice, you're supposed to listen to it. You do take other things into account. Of course, you have to think about the economic picture. You have to think about the impact on children's education. You have to think about the social impact of what you're doing. But you know, you should be following the, the scientific advice when it's clear. But at several points in this crisis, you know, the scientific advice wasn't quite there yet or it wasn't um, conclusive or, you know, there were large sort of gaps in confidence as to what scientists could, could say, you know, going back to that critical week in March, you know, the, the, the week when they could have locked down and didn't, and, and didn't lock down, you know, at the beginning of that, SAGE was still not able to say yet whether schools should shut. And that's the point where a prime minister has to exercise their own judgment. They have to say, we've got a partial picture. What are my gut feelings here? And the thing is that, that Boris Johnson's gut feelings tend to be risk-taking rather than precautionary he's a gambler, you know, we know that from his, we know that from the stance he's taken on Brexit, we know that from, you know, pretty much the entire pattern of his political and and personal career, he's also a libertarian, he feels it, finds it very hard, you know, before this, Boris Johnson was radically opposed to the idea that, you know, the state should limit the amount of sugar in breakfast cereal, you know, you think that someone with that mindset, how they find, um, how alien it is, the concept of locking down an entire, country and he tended to put off unpalatable decisions when when you know and, and and sort of hope that something else would come up and I think this this personal conflict in Johnson comes up in in conflicting messages to the public you know he when Dominic Cummings famously um took his his trip to Barnard Castle to test his eyesight Boris Johnson's chief of staff driving off up north with his wife and child when his wife was ill with Covid and and Johnson didn't sack him you know he almost made light of that you know he was forgiven for that and it was just understandable what a parent would do and so that but that sent a a completely muddled message to the public which is on the one hand here's the advice that you're supposed to stay at home and on the other hand it's kind of fine if you don't and it's that mismatch between or this inability throughout to take a precautionary approach to it to think when in doubt Better safe than sorry. Safety first. You know that it's absolutely not Boris Johnson's approach to life or government, and mm-hmm. I think that has cost us.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, and quite a lot of it, I think, comes down to the uh, economy, where you know there's a large part of the Conservative backbench and probably the Conservative front bench as well that is just convinced that if you don't, if you do lock down, it's going to kill the economy and somehow can't compute with the other half of it, which is, well, if you don't lock down, then you're going to need to lock down for longer <laughs> later, and that's going to kill <laughs> going the economy. <laughs> um, and uh, like that, that, that's that been, I mean, we've got, again, pictures in there of Rishi Sunak with the uh, Eat Out to Help Out scheme, which it's going to be, you know, dangerous dogs act and poll tax. A classic example of a terrible policy uh, quite soon, isn't it, Gabby? Um, well, it mainly
1: helped out the virus. That's the trouble. Um, it did, you know, provide an opportunity for coronavirus to spread. And I think we're going to see, you know, the the next step, I think, now is we have to manage at some point the, the exit from the lockdown we're in. And you're already starting to hear Tory MPs say, you know, as soon as the most vulnerable are vaccinated, we have to open up again. Businesses can't stand um. To stay shut for this long you know we have to get get the pubs open by april or whatever and attention between that and the scientists saying well hang on if you do that you're going to end up with a fourth wave you know and and if you have a a, a sort of terrible sense of deja vu at that point well you know rightly so because this is a debate we were having last spring and we kind of all know how that ended up so it's this constant tension between managing the demands of the economy and the demands of of public health without realising that, as you say, they're interlinked. You know, there's no, there's no sort of way of disentangling them. Countries that locked down harder and earlier seem to have had less of an impact on their um, economies than we have. And, you know, we, but yet we haven't quite been able to, um, to take that point on board. And it'd be interesting to see how early we come out of this lockdown.
2: Okay, well, let's turn now, let's bring ourselves up to date. You know, we've done the last year and so let's try and do the last couple of weeks. Phil, certainly the perception, and it pivoted very, very quickly after the UK went through the 100,000 deaths, is that the UK was giving the world a masterclass in how to get the vaccine out quickly to a lot of people and indeed that the European Union was screwing it up.
0: Uh, I think that's true. You know, I I think that for once, we seem to be doing something right. I mean, I I can't avoid the the sense that the reason we are doing it right is that the government on this occasion had realised its duty was to let something happen and get out of the way of it happening. So the NHS... Rather than private contractors have been responsible for the vaccine rollout, and it's been going very, very smoothly. And that is something to be to be, to be very glad of. And it's absolutely the case, I think, that the EU has has failed up in that regard. It signed its contract. Too late with AstraZeneca for their vaccines. It then tried to, uh, to to backpedal and bring in, you know, rules and and export restrictions to try to make up for what was clearly a mistake. And it created a lot of bad feeling in doing so. So, uh, you know, in that respect, w- we are doing well. I think the the the, uh, the vaccination numbers they're, they're higher than anywhere else in the world, and you know, it seems well on course for reaching the kind of targets where all of the most vulnerable groups have been vaccinated by the early to mid-spring. Okay I'm going to come back in a minute on the
2: science of what that does or doesn't mean but first Gabby on the politics the same day we published our article Tom McTade over at the Atlantic published a kind of very provocative piece saying 100,000 deaths it's all bloody awful but like it's not actually experience and reality that shapes politics it's a sense of story and this story now looks to be ending however terrible it's been in a triumphant vaccine program and uh, Boris Johnson can uh, expect to go forward from it in quite a confident mood what did you make of that as an argument?
1: I think there's a danger in seeing this as the end of the story I mean I don't want to talk about it as a story I suppose when when you know so many people have lost loved ones it's not really a story is it it's, it's life but but I think <sighs> There was, there was definitely a sort of twist in things at the beginning of the year when the vaccine rollout starts, it's all going brilliantly and it's not just the, the vaccine rollout of course, it, you know, the, the sort of actual mechanics of getting it out to people, it's the procurement work that went on before that, you know, through the UK Vaccines Task Force and Kate Bingham, its chair, who was very much reviled at the time, she obviously bought the right vaccines, you know, six months before all of this, we'd started manufacturing the Oxford vaccine even before it was approved, even before the trials had shown it worked, we'd started manufacturing it here so we could sort of iron out any difficulties in the process, you know, that had been a public, private and voluntary partnership, and it had done brilliantly. And actually, you know, Boris Johnson does get a lift from that. He gets a lift from the vaccine rollout itself, and the fact that it's all going great, and everyone loves the fact their granny's been vaccinated. But also from the fact that, you know, for once, government is not constantly having to firefight. It's going out on the radio to say, "Haven't we done well?" Not to be beaten over the head for doing something wrong. So, and we see that effect in the polls. Definitely, Boris does get a kind of vaccine bounce. You know, and and people very much want to believe in the good news, but they also want to believe in Boris himself. I think. If you voted, and an awful lot of people did for Boris Johnson last December, you know, you want to be proved right. You want to think that you made the right choice. And I think a lot of people, although his approval ratings fell really sharply um, in the first six months of the pandemic, a lot of people did want him to, sort of willing him to do well rather than gone off impermanently. And that's what we're seeing at the moment. And that's why at the moment Keir Starmer's is coming under such pressure, because the Labour Party seems to have stalled in its progress. And then the Labour Party is looking at him going, well, you know, what else have you got? You know, it's not it's not enough just to rely on Boris Johnson being unpopular. But I think we're a long way from out of the woods yet. We haven't yet seen the full economic impact of what's happened because obviously people are still on furlough. We haven't seen the job losses that may flow from this. And we also haven't got out of the woods in terms of, of the disease itself and, and the number of deaths from it. I mean, we're looking, we have to manage the exit from lockdown, as we said, and we have to deal with the emergence of new mutant variants around the world. South African variant now, but I suspect was we'll the others to come that reduce the vaccine's efficacy. So we're not necessarily looking at a situation that we thought we were a few weeks ago, which is great. We get everyone vaccinated and it's fine. It's all over We're sorted. It may not work like that. It may be that we need a plan B as well as the vaccines um, to manage what happens next.
2: Phil, how worried, you speak to these virologists and vaccinologists, how worried should we be about the fact that we've got this glorious vaccine rollout going on, but it's overwhelmingly the so-called Oxford vaccine that people have been given. And we're reading today that even with the existing uh, South African variant, which uh, we know we've got lots of cases of in the country we've got some cases of in the country it, it maybe isn't very effective at all I mean c- could you see could we be in a position either with that variant or some other variant where effectively the, the, the whole vaccine effort is
0: undone or is that really too gloomy? It's not impossible, I'm afraid, Tom. Um, at the moment, it doesn't look quite like that. But, you know, this picture is changing daily, almost hourly, actually. It, the uh, the other vaccines, the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine, um, you know, it, it, it's looking as though all of the vaccines that have been looked at so far seem to have reduced efficacy against the Uh, the South African variant. It's a question of how how much reduced. And, you know, some of them seem to be holding out, as far as we can tell at the moment, well enough. So the effectiveness goes down from maybe something like 65-70% to something like 55, 57%. That's enough to make a difference, but it's certainly concerning. This latest news, and, you know, it has to be said that the the, the statistics are still small, so we can't be too certain, but it is starting to look as though the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is the cheapest one, is uh, perhaps not going to be effective in any significant degree against the the South African variant. If that's true, then that's really deeply concerning news. However, it could spell the need for really serious
2: lockdowns over most of the year, couldn't it? Because that would mean most of these 70 plus, 80 plus who've just had their vaccine actually haven't had much protection if we let the South African variant really take hold, right?
0: Well, you know, if if, in that worst case scenario where the the AstraZeneca vaccine just proves to be really not effective protection at all against the South African variant, then either you have a a scenario like that. It seems to prevent
1: mild or moderate disease, though, doesn't it? I mean, just I'm just thinking, before we worry anyone who's listening into thinking that they're going to die, it does, it does, protect against, it seems effective, seems effective against the most severe cases, it's not effective against mild, moderate cases, but it's effective, it seems to be more effective against the kind that lead to hospitalisation and death.
0: Yes, a- absolutely. And I, I and, and that is very important that all the, uh, the vaccines have been looked at so far, you know, when we hear numbers like 70% effective, 80% effective or whatever, um, that's in terms of preventing the, the uh, people from getting the disease, but it seems that at least some of these vaccines, for those people who who do still get the disease, that it completely gets rid of the the, the, the fatalities. So it, it makes the disease much more moderate. However, you know, if it means that the disease is still, that COVID in some form is still circulating amongst the, the, the population, then there's always the possibility, the likelihood even, that still, more virulent uh, variants are, are likely to arise. So, you know, unless you can actually completely suppress the circulation of the virus, there's always that that worry. So, you, you know, it, it may be that one one possibility is that, as as I think Gabby said earlier on, that the borders, you know, we just have to to, to lock down the borders. That maybe you know life can continue more or less normally, but with very severe travel. Restrictions That's one possibility. But I, I think that what, you know what is being said, and I think what has been clear all along is, particularly with the mRNA vaccines, the uh, Pfizer and moderna vaccines, it's relatively easy to retool the vaccine, to reformulate it, just as we do with flu vaccines, without having to go through the whole process of clinical trials and, and, and approval and so forth. And in fact, you know, there are plenty of experts who think that in the long term is what's going to have to happen anyway, that we're going to have to have a seasonal variation of a, a COVID vaccine that we all get that is geared to, you know, the latest variants that are going around. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's it's not all gloom because uh, there, is, there there should be that possibility. It's a bit harder, I think, to do with something like the the AstraZeneca vaccine, but there too, you know, that that should be possible.
2: Okay, I mean, um, so it sounds like it's going to need a lot of proactive effort and policy, uh, you know, in in the event that these variants take hold. So finally, Gabby, if you're reading the, the the tea leaves, just give us a word on how you think the politics would play out if it does come to this question about borders. I mean, is it going to be very controversial that we left the airports open uh, so that we've now got hundreds of South African cases in the UK? Is that going to become the next big front? And do you think in the end, global Britain could live with being a bit less global if that's the price of um, uh, controlling this thing?
1: I think that's the discussion we're now going to have to have. We now know that Priti Patel suggested last March when when we first um, had the first outbreak that we closed the borders and that Matt Hancock Health Secretary also wanted to do that and that they were overruled within Cabinet. And the fact that those two facts have come to light is interesting Put it that way. It suggests somebody wants us to know that they were right all along. But I think that, you know, comes back with with bells on this time because there's no point in having a vastly expensive and, you know, and life saving vaccine regime which is then undermined by importing potentially in the future you know entirely resistant vaccine strains but it's not you know somewhere like New Zealand which closed its borders you know can live without the fact that its it's tourism industry has been crippled by that UK is is a hub it's not just a place that a lot of people come for business it's a transit point between America and Europe it's a connecting point for a lot of flights you know we are a country reliant on open borders and to have to close them, ironically, uh, given where we are in the process of uh, instigating Brexit, which is all about supposedly taking control of our borders, you know, it's a huge step economically to do that. The other thing I would say to watch out for in the next couple of months is a continued debate about who is and isn't having the vaccine because we have seen higher rates of refusal among BAME communities. That's going to mean parts of the country become potentially less defended than others, we're seeing care home workers refusing to have the vaccine, which obviously has implications for their for their patients. What does government want to do about that or not do about it? And I think we still haven't solved the question of people being able to afford to self-isolate um, when they are told that they've been in contact with the virus, which has been a niggling problem throughout. It's what stopped people complying with test and trace, and, and, and still we don't have a solution to that from government. So I think we're going to hear a lot more about that over the next few months.
2: Seems a bit much to call those things you're talking about there, those huge things, each of them loose ends but nonetheless we will have to tie up and leave that there for now so Gabby and Phil thanks for joining us if you enjoyed the chat do look out the latest issue for our magazine for our report our inquiry report which is on newsstands if you can find an open one or of course you can read it online on the prospect website Um, And there you can read Phil, Gabby and I going through the Grim saga one step at a time. Thank you very much for joining us um, and listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, we'd love it if you'd leave us a rating or a review. Goodbye, stay safe and we'll see you next week.